0: Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Uh, If we haven't met yet, my name's Luke, and I get to serve as one of the ministers here. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, it's in your Old Testament. And uh, as you're turning there, let me ask you a question Uh, What do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? Man, I, I don't know what you'd say. Uh, maybe maybe it's a bonus that you're wanting, maybe a, a vacation, time with the kids where nobody's fighting, that's what my mom always asks for, uh, a night to yourself, a new phone, or maybe, just maybe, it's a Red Ryder BB gun. Uh, you, you remember, though, as a kid, right, when you get asked that question, what do you want for Christmas? Six little words, but that question is way more than just six little words, is and that is a doorway into a magical universe full of opportunities. What do you want for Christmas? When I was a kid, there were six of us siblings, and my parents would ask us. They'd say, what do you want for Christmas? And then they'd hand us one of those catalogs that came in the mail. Kids, they were made out of this thing called paper. And... Uh, <clears throat> and we'd go take those catalogs off and we'd just spend hours flipping through them and circling everything we wanted and then we'd go give them back to mom and dad and mom and dad would look through and see all the things we circled and they'd look at the toy that we circled and then they'd look at whatever those little numbers were below with the little S and the line through it and, and then they, they, the little game was they'd try to talk us out of whatever that we circled, right? And mom would say, well, like, no, you can't have a Red rider BB gun. Why? Because... You'll shoot your eye out, right? That was her reason. And, and so, well, what else do you want for Christmas? And I, I can remember the year, no lie, that I circled a unicycle. And I saw this unicycle, and I just had a vision in my head of little eight-year-old Luke. And I thought, you know, within a day or two, I'll be riding this thing to school and auditioning for the Cirque du Soleil. Everything will be great. And then, like, within a couple days of cleaning up the wrapping paper off of the floor and putting away the lights, I realized that actually I'm uncoordinated. And just because to this day I still own a unicycle does not mean that I can actually ride one. And so if anybody needs a free unicycle this year, I've got one, it's all yours, you can take it. Let me ask you the question. What do you want for Christmas? Because when we come year after year, day after day sometimes, and we bring our wants to the table and yet over and over and over again, we are met by disappointment, and we find that this world is rigged for our dissatisfaction, then, well, we end up just doing what we saw Naomi do last week in Ruth chapter one, that when we don't get what we want, or even sometimes we do get what we want, and it fails to satisfy us, we end up just like downgrading our desire, and we let hope fade into the background, and we sometimes we... We close ourselves off to avoid being hurt again. Um, I'm not an animal expert, but I've learned something recently about sand gazelles. This is an Arabian sand gazelle. They live in the desert of Saudi Arabia where it's obviously very hot and very dry. And when it's hot and dry and there's a shortage of water, God has made this Arabian sand gazelle that in order to survive, God has given it this ability that it can actually shrink its heart and shrink its liver to try to conserve water to protect itself so that it can survive. Isn't that incredible? This thing can shrink its own heart to survive. And if we're not careful, sometimes you and I, when life hurts you, and when you face disappointment, and when you have had your hope dried up over and over and over again, you'll be tempted to do the same thing. To just just shrink your heart a little bit. Because what happens if you never find water? And so you shrink your heart, and it comes out in a variety of different ways. You start trying to control the situation to get what you want. Or you start in your relationships, you don't go to the depths anymore. You just hang out at the shallows to avoid the risk of vulnerability. Or in your relationship with the Lord, you stop expecting great things from God, and you just shrink your heart. In contrast, though, to the Arabian sand gazelle is the good old white-tailed deer. And a deer gets thirsty, and it sometimes gets hot and dry. But what does a deer do when it gets thirsty? The Bible actually tells us in Psalm 42, it says, as the deer pants, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God for the living God. Man, is that, is that the cry of your heart today? Because when it gets hot and when it gets dry and that deer gets thirsty, what's that deer do? It starts panting. That deer starts walking around everywhere with its tongue wagging, letting the whole world know that it's thirsty, that it's on the hunt for water, and that it believes it's gonna find something to drink. And so that's the challenge that Naomi is gonna face today in Ruth chapter two, and that's my gentle challenge to you this season as well. Just, just don't shrink your heart, but take those desires, take those longings, take those dreams, and, and bring your hope to God. We're in Ruth chapter 2 today, Ruth chapter 2 in the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament, and our story takes place in the little town of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. That's where we hear all the Christmas stories about, but the story of Ruth takes place a thousand years before that, and Ruth is pretty famous for being a love story, but it's not just a love story. It's also a grief story because Ruth is barren, she doesn't have any kids, and she's now left her homeland to follow her mother-in-law, Naomi, and and she's lost her husband, and and, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, it's a story of grief for her, too, because she also had to leave her home, and she lost her husband, and she lost both of her kids, and so if we walked up to Ruth and Naomi today, and we asked them, hey, what do you want for Christmas? I don't know what they'd say, but we can infer that maybe they'd say something like, well, I love a husband, I love a baby, Or like today, even just like food and shelter would do, the bottom line is hope, we want hope. And so let's pick up the story. We're gonna read all of Ruth chapter two here together and we'll stop and start a little bit on the way. Remember the scene is that they've left Moab and they've just arrived back home in Bethlehem and the text says this. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, "'Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain "'behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor.' Naomi said to her, "'Go ahead, my daughter.' So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. Pause right there. Here's the context. God wanted his people, the Jews, to be a light to the world, to show them who he is. And so God hardwired into the Jewish law ways of caring for the poor, to show the world that, hey, our God is a God who cares about taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. And one of those ways was that Jewish farmers were required by law to only make one pass across their fields when they're harvested. So if you're a farmer harvesting barley, remember, you're harvesting everything by hand, so sometimes things are going to fall, you're going to drop something, and when some extra barley falls to the ground, you can't go back and pick it up. You have to make one pass and leave all the extras laying there, and you're also supposed to leave a little extra around the edges of your field so that the poor can come along behind you, they can pick up the scraps, and they can have enough to eat. Over and over and over again in the law, God makes ways to care for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, that triplicate appears over and over again, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, and Ruth just happens to be all three. She's foreign, she's a fatherless, and she's a widow, and so she's gonna come along and pick up the scraps. It's called gleaning, the text goes on. It says, as it turned out, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan, Of Elimelech. Again, pause right there. Boaz is on the opposite end of the social ladder from Ruth. Ruth is an underprivileged, impoverished female foreigner. And Boaz is a well-known Jewish man of prominence. The text that we just read here says that he was a man of standing in the NIV. The ESV says he's a worthy man. The NLT says he's an influential man. The CSB says he's a prominent man. And the King James Version says he's a mighty man. And now every child of the 90s has salt and Pepper playing in their heads, right? What a man, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. Am I alone? Anybody else in the room? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, like the text doesn't come right out and say he's tall, dark, and handsome, but we can assume, right? And Boaz, he just gets better and better and better as the story goes along. Now, last week we said that when you read a name in scripture, that's really important. It can give you a clue to who somebody is, but it's also really important when you're reading the Bible to notice the first words that come out of somebody's mouth because often the first thing you hear somebody say is a clue to their character. So what's the first thing we hear Boaz say? Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. He's a mighty good man. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? Now, that is an ancient Hebrew uh, phrase for who that girl? The overseer replied, she's the Moabite. Yeah, she's not one of us. She's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Uh, watch the field where the men are harvesting, and, and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you, and, you know, whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. And at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. Now, you see what Boaz is doing. It's like, okay, Boaz, I, I see you, right? She's like, no, nah, Ruth, you don't just have to pick up the scraps, you know? I mean, if you're, you're working hard, if you, get, if you get thirsty, you know, you could come have a drink, you know, he's like going above and beyond, little by little here, all right, okay, I see you, he goes on, and Ruth, she's, she's flabbergasted by this, um, Ruth says this, she falls on her, with her, on her face to the ground, says, she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner, what Boaz is doing is crazy, Boaz replied, here's why, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. She said, you've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, hey, come over here, have some bread, dip dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. That's a remarkable turn of events for a woman who didn't know where her next meal was gonna come from. And this would have been astounding in that cultural. It's incredible. This is completely upside down from what we expect. In this scene here, Boaz, he doesn't have to, but he invites Ruth to come join him at this meal. All of a sudden, we have insider serving outsider, and powerful serving powerless, man serving woman, Jew serving Moabite, the privileged serving the endangered, and one who has absolutely nothing to offer is now invited to the feast free of cost where the master serves the servant. I'd almost say it's unheard of. But of course it reminds you of another mighty good man, doesn't it? Don't you hear the echoes of Jesus? The story continues. It says, as, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even, you know what, let's, let's give her some extra. Pull out some stocks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't, don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field till evening. Then she threshed the barley she'd gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. That's about 30 pounds. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered because an ephah, that's how much a normal worker would make in two weeks, but Ruth made it in one day. This is an incredible blessing from God, but it gets even better. The text goes on. It says Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she'd eaten enough. Her her mother-in-law, she's astounded. But where did you glean today and where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi is, is astounded by this turn of events here. This is like spiritual whiplash for her because She started the day with this kind of forgotten hope, sand gazelle, shrunken heart bitterness, and now God is melting her heart with overwhelming blessing, and it gets even better. Naomi goes on, she says, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Now pause right there, because on top of this, Boaz isn't just a mighty good man, he isn't just a relative, he's also a redeemer. Uh, the, The guardian redeemer was another provision that God had made in his law to take care of the weak. If a man was unable to hold on to his property, he got in debt or something like that, his closest male relative was called the guardian redeemer, and he had the legal right to purchase that property so that it wouldn't be sold out of the family. It could continue down and be a part of the inheritance. In the same way, if a man died without having any kids, there's no heir to inherit his stuff. The closest male relative, a guardian redeemer, could marry his widow. They could conceive an heir together who would inherit all the stuff in that guy's name. It was a way of providing for those who could not provide for themselves. And all of a sudden we see here Boaz, oh, he's, he's one of the redeemers. Could it be? Is there perhaps a reason for hope, a reason for Naomi to unshrink her heart again? The text ends by saying this, then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. So by the end of this chapter, you've noticed it just a little bit, just a little bit, that Naomi might be starting to change, that she's bringing her desire back to the table. She's unshrinking her heart, and she's opening herself up again to Ruth, to Boaz, even to God, and that's a dangerous thing, but it's the thing that you were made for. You and I, we were made to be fully alive in Jesus. You were made to have a heart that is fully his, that longs for him. You were made to have a heart that pants for him like a deer pants after water. So let me ask you the question again. What's your desire? What do you want? Um, And each week as we walk through this story together toward Christmas, we're asking some tough questions together. Last week in Ruth chapter one, we asked where's God when it hurts? And today in Ruth chapter two, as we bring these desires to God, we're asking okay, what's God gonna do with this? How will God provide? How will God provide for you and I? We see three answers here in Ruth chapter two that we just read together. The first one is this. God will provide through sovereign circumstances. Sovereign circumstances. Um, Back in the 1800s, one of the most famous stage actors in America was a guy named Edwin Thomas. Edwin Thomas was a small man with a huge voice and he was world renowned. He was uh, particularly good at his Shakespearean performance. He was famous all across the country but Edwin Thomas lived a tragic life. He had two brothers, John and Junius, who were both also actors, but they weren't quite as successful as him. But one time, the three of them performed the play Julius Caesar together, and as they did, Edwin's brother John played the role of Brutus. You might remember the story that Brutus was Julius Caesar's friend who turned on him later in a brutal assassination, and sadly, that was a sign of things to come. Because just a couple years after that play, that same brother John became a real life assassin, sneaking into Ford's Theater on a crisp April night in 1865 and firing a fatal bullet into Abraham Lincoln's head. Those brothers, their name was Booth. Edwin Thomas Booth and John Wilkes Booth. And after what his brother John did, wrecked Edwin's life he was so ashamed shaken embarrassed that he, he retired early he quit the stage he stopped acting he shrunk his heart to protect himself and Edwin's life might have fallen completely off the rails if it hadn't been for a particular incident that happened at a New Jersey train station Edwin was standing there waiting one day when in the hustle and the bustle of a crowd, a young man was accidentally knocked off of the platform and into the path of an oncoming train. Edwin happened to notice what happened, and at the last possible moment, he reached down, grabbed the young man, and lifted him back up on the platform to safety. He saved this young man's life. And the young man kind of dusted himself off, put himself together, and looked back up at his rescuer and realized, oh, this is the famous actor. This is Edwin Booth. But Edwin did not recognize the young man. It wasn't until weeks later that Edwin got a letter in the mail from the secretary to General Ulysses S. Grant. It was a letter that was thanking Edwin Booth for his actions at the train station where he had saved the life of the son of Abraham Lincoln. The man had been none other than Robert Todd Lincoln. Two Booth brothers. One chose death, and the other chose life. And Edwin carried that letter in his pocket for the rest of his life because in what seemed like a little circumstantial twist of fate at a New Jersey train station, that wound on his soul had begun to mend. Seems like just happenstance, right? The text we read earlier says that Ruth just happened to glean in the field of Boaz She didn't have an angel guiding her. She didn't have a pillar of cloud. Didn't have an X marks the spot. Didn't have a neon sign from heaven. Didn't have a star in the sky to follow. Just as luck would have it, Ruth wound up in Boaz's field. And, you know, it's it's been said before that coincidence is just God's way of remaining anonymous. Um, Ruth's great-grandson, a guy named David, would write this in Psalm 31. He said, God, my times are in your hands. And if that was true for David, if it's true for Ruth, if it's true for me and you, that our times are in his hands, then that means that God is sovereignly active in the circumstances of your life. It means that God has got his hand on the rudder of your story. It means that God is knitting together the events of the universe and he's weaving them all into his great redemptive tapestry. It means that you are not here by accident. It means that no matter where you are in life, God's got you right where he wants you. Now, it's not just any old field, Ruth. And that means for you and me, it's like it's not just the dead end job. And it's not just the same old routine day after day after day. And it's not just errands to run and doctor's appointments and and bills to pay and kids to raise and, and games to go to. Like God put you there and he will provide for you there. A few weeks ago, we got a visit from our some of our friends at TCI, which is a ministry our church has supported for a number of years in Ukraine, and obviously, you can imagine over the last series of months during the war, they've had a really hard stretch, and they've experienced devastating loss and horrific stories, and while our friends were here, they were telling us about everything that's been going on, and I'm going to pause here for a minute and remind you that like when you give to Plainfield Christian Church, a portion of every dollar there goes to provide relief and aid in some of the darkest places around the world, which is why we are not ashamed to ask you to keep giving here, because God God's using it to bring the kingdom of heaven into dark places all around the planet. But while they were here, our friends showed us this video. It's a video of a church in Kherson, Ukraine, which is right in the heart of the war zone, the worst of the worst. And this church, before the war, had 20 people in it. Take a look. They're meeting this morning, and it's overflowing they are experiencing full-blown revival right in the middle of a war zone. The gospel's taking root. Even in the darkness, God is still moving. Even in war, he is ushering his sovereign circumstances together to provide for his people. If God can do that on a train station in New Jersey and a Palestinian farm field and a Ukrainian war zone, can't he do that with your life? He will provide for you through sovereign circumstances. Your times are in his hands. Here's the second thing. How will God provide? God provides through sovereign circumstances. He also provides, though, through his countercultural law. Because before Boaz the mighty good man ever came on the scene, God had already ordained a way for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow to be taken care of. And it was through his law where God instructed his people to go against the grain of the world around them, to set aside their self-centeredness and to leave some grain behind to help feed other people and even sometimes to set aside your own desires and your own wealth to purchase property or even father and heir on behalf of someone who couldn't provide for themselves. And that stands in stark contrast to the world around them. It stands in stark contrast also to the world around us, doesn't it? Because the message you're gonna hear when you walk out those doors is you do you and you speak your truth and nobody else can tell you what's right and what's wrong for you. And listen, that sounds like freedom, but it's actually slavery and it will leave you marooned on an island of your own making with no moral compass with which to find your way home. You can go read the stats your own on your own this afternoon on, on, on sexual dysfunction and substance abuse and loneliness and mental health. Like the way of the world is not working. What more proof do you need And in the middle of that, we get to step into that world as the people of God who live by the laws of God that have been written on our hearts through the spirit of Christ. And we get to say, actually, you know what? When you unshrink your heart and you listen to God, when you embrace God's design for your life, when you embrace God's design for your marriage, when you embrace God's design for your career, when you embrace God's design for your finances, when you embrace God's design for gender and sexuality, and God's design for a life of service, and you admit that you're actually not the best one to run your own life, that actually He is, God uses His law written on our hearts to show the world the goodness of who He is in a way that is radically countercultural. Because remember this story. The story of Ruth happens at the time of the Judges. We said last week, that was the time the book of Judges says where every person did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) And yet, not Boaz. Boaz chose to live according to the law of God. And look what God did to provide through that. Um, And it wasn't just that Boaz followed the rules, It's that Boaz allowed the rules, the laws of God, to give him God's heart. Because he went way over and above. Uh, One author said that the letter of the law says let them glean, but the spirit of the law says feed them. And as you live according to the laws of God, now that we follow Jesus, we don't just do away with God's laws and do whatever we want, but as we follow Jesus according to his law, he uses that law to shape us and give us God's heart that allows us then to protect and provide for the people that he's put around us, just like Boaz did for Ruth. So like, are you living the way God's made you to live? And that means, do you have his heart? Do you have his eyes for the lonely? Do you have his eyes for the foreigner? Do you have his eyes for the fatherless? Do you have his eyes for the widow? Do you notice them like Boaz noticed Ruth? Are you you the kind of boss who really genuinely takes care of your employees and works for their best interest? Are you the kind of spouse who genuinely lives a life of service in your marriage? Are you the kind of family that leverages the resources God's entrusted you with, not just for yourselves, but for the good of those he's put around you. James 127 says, Hey, you want to know the kind of faith that God likes? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this: to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's the heart of God, and that's what God's law is designed to help us do. Practically speaking, I hope that means you will give and serve your socks off at this church because we believe in what God is doing here to provide for people all around the world and help them become fully alive in Jesus. It means I hope you'll take those giving catalogs that Eric talked about, and I hope you'll use those as part of your family rhythm this Christmas and talk about, hey, at this time of the year when the rest of the world is focused on getting, we're gonna respond to God and we're gonna recognize how generous God's been to us by focus on giving to those that he's put around us. And when you do that, you'll find like Boaz and Naomi and Ruth found that it really is more blessed to give than to receive and that God really does provide for you and that God really will meet all of your needs in ways that are wilder than you possibly could have imagined. And God will use you to provide for the people around you. Okay, so two things. Number one, God will provide through his sovereign circumstances. Number two, he'll provide for his countercultural law. Here's the third thing. God provides for you and your desires through counterintuitive generosity counterintuitive generosity, because God is generous, it's who he is. But that doesn't mean we get everything we want, right? I mean, even here in chapter two, Ruth and Naomi, they, they don't get everything that they circled in the catalog. They get a nice meal, but we come to the end of chapter two and it's not like their future is totally secure. They haven't gotten everything they wanted, but God has given them just enough to remind them that he can be trusted, that they can dare to unshrink their hearts and hope again. God will provide for you. But here's why God's generosity often feels counterintuitive to you and me. It's because God is way more interested in changing your hearts than he is in changing your circumstances. God doesn't just wanna change your circumstances. He wants to change your heart. So will you open your heart to how God wants to change you and shape you in this season? A couple of weeks ago, I got to do the funeral for Orville Reese. Um, Some of you will know Orville, wonderful, wonderful, sweet man, and Orville and Wilma have been part of our church for a long time, and you can't talk to them for more than about five seconds without them telling you just how kind God has been to them. And I love their story. Orville and Wilma met many years ago when they were both at college, And Orville was cleaning the dorms, mopping the floors. And Wilma walked in, and he'd never seen her before, but he saw her ginger hair, and he said, well, hi, Red. And she said, that's not my name. (laughs) And 73 years later, they're the longest married couple in our church. 73 years together, what a legacy. And the last three of those years have been really hard. Orville's needed a lot of care. Wilma stayed by his side pretty much 24-7. That's a hard season. But if you talk to Orville and Wilma, they both said the same thing. It's amazing. They said, you know what? These last three years have been the sweetest years of our lives. And when I heard that, I thought, Wilma, what in the world are you talking about? (laughs) As a young guy, looking at everything they're going through, looking at the way that they are suffering, I thought, Wilma, how in the world could you say that? But if you asked her today, she'd say, We opened our hearts to what God wanted to do and we realized that no matter what else, we still had him and we still had each other. How in the world, because they they say the last three years have been the sweetest years of their lives. When I asked Wilma if I could share that story with you, she said, yeah, did you know my middle name's Naomi? (laughs) (laughs) One author says it like this. He says, if the foundation of your happiness is your vocation, your relationships, or your money, then suffering takes your source of joy away from you. But if your ultimate value in life is God, then suffering drives you closer to your source of joy. Man, I want that, don't you? And so God is generous, yes, but it's a counterintuitive generosity because God wants to teach you, Naomi, to unshrink your heart and trust that no matter what comes, he is your refuge and strength, and he is your ever-present help in trouble, and that he has never out-promised himself yet, and that even though your needs are as vast as the sand on the seashore, his grace is like the waves that just keep washing over it again and again and again and again. And he wants to teach you that your greatest need isn't a Red Ryder BB gun or a unicycle or a vacation or a relationship or a house or a clean bill of health that your greatest need is always for your heart fully alive in Jesus? And when you open your heart to that and you choose to trust again, then you'll find what Naomi found in verse 20. When she said it, she realized, she said, Oh, he's not stopped showing his kindness. That God had actually been there all along, even when she couldn't see it. And, and you'll find that, that he's not stopped showing his kindness to you. And so how will God provide for Naomi and for Ruth? Yes, he'll do it through sovereign circumstances, and he'll do it through his countercultural law. Yes, and, and of course, he'll, he'll do it through his counterintuitive generosity. But mainly, the main way that God provided for them was through a person. It's through Boaz, right? A redeemer. A redeemer. And for you and for me, God has provided and he will provide through a person, our redeemer. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter four. He says, and my God will meet all your needs. Every single one of them. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This is how God provides. It's Him. It's a person. And and if God has already provided for your deepest need, won't He take care of all those other things too? Because God orchestrated all of those sovereign circumstances in fulfillment. Of his countercultural law and displayed his counterintuitive generosity in that same little village of Bethlehem a thousand years later on a long night. And if your greatest need was for a pat on the back, he would have said, A life coach has been born to you. <laughs> and if your greatest need was for better relationships, he would have said, A therapist has been born to you. And if your greatest need was for more money, he would have said an economist has been born to you. And if your greatest need was for a sermon, he would have said a preacher's been born to you. And if your greatest need was for better health, he would have said a physician has been born to you. And if your greatest need was for better government, he would have said a politician has been born to you. But God knew that you and me, our greatest need was for a redeemer And so the angels showed up in the field of the shepherds and they said, today, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. And he is Christ the Lord. So we celebrate that together every week about how God came. He didn't stay far away, but he came all the way here so that you and I could have a redeemer how will God provide? He already has, which means that he will. So I'm gonna give you a few moments on your own to be, to be with the Lord and to thank him for how he came and he orchestrated all of those sovereign circumstances to send Jesus to the cross in fulfillment of his law so that you and I could say today that yes, no matter what your life is like today, he has not stopped showing his kindness. So take a moment and receive this little piece of bread which is the body of Jesus that was crucified for you and me. And then I'll pray and we'll receive the cup together. Our Father and our God, we sung those words earlier and you heard them. Dear desire of every nation, hope of every longing heart. You know the hopes of our longing hearts, Lord. You see what we want, you see what we think we need, you see what we hope for, what we're dreaming about, what we wish we had, you see all of it. And we bring it to you, God. My prayer for my brothers and sisters is that if we have closed ourselves off to you in any way, that you would give us the courage to open our hearts again. Because we believe that you are sovereign and that you're active in our lives and that you've, you've put us here for your purpose. And we believe that you have made us to live in a way that is so radically different from the world that it shows them the glory of your great love. And, and we believe, God, that you are generous and that you will not withhold from us anything that we need and so we know We know that even in the face of all that, you have proven it to us once and for all by the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. And so we say again together that you've not stopped showing your kindness to us. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. This is the blood of Christ.